Welcome to Produce Talks. This whole business is based on relationship and friendships. Food is darn simple. What can we do? What are other countries doing? How important it is for industry to be talking about this. We're going back to the farm. We're going back to the whole food. Hello and welcome to Produce Talks, the CPMA podcast. My name is Ian Brody, and this episode, we are widening the lens on sustainability to look at the national agri-food system in Canada. As supply chains, investors, and government all push to reduce impacts on the environment, the ability to measure and demonstrate sustainability credentials in the domestic and global marketplace matters. Later on, I'll be joined by John Uren, Head of Sustainable Finance, Product, and Strategy at BMO, along with Bridget Schrempf, Senior Manager of Sustainable Food Systems at CDP Worldwide, to talk more about the how and why behind measuring sustainability. But first, we'll talk about the National Index of Agri-Food Performance, a national joint effort between producers, industry, government, NGOs, innovation organizations, and academia, and one that CPMA is a proud partner of. The project aims to develop a credible set of high-performance indicators to measure Canada's sustainability leadership and progress in the agri-food sector. My first guest on the show is David McInnes, the project coordinator for this very unique collaboration. Welcome, David. Well, it's good to be here, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining. How was that description of, of, of the initiative? You know, how would you put it in, in your own words? Ian, you've done a fabulous job. I think this podcast is over. You've summed it up beautifully. <laughs> uh, look, uh, Canada has a tremendous opportunity. Uh, we believe that, and many believe that Canada's food system is highly trusted, highly sustainable, safe, and high quality. But the marketplace, quite frankly, it's demanding proof. And uh, we see a sustainability index as not just a way to demonstrate those credentials, but actually it's a way to leverage a tool that may in fact help us compete, add greater value from producers right through to retailers and improve societal outcomes. So this is a, a sea change opportunity if it's done right. So can you maybe just expand a little bit, I guess, in terms of the timeline and, and, and where we're at in, in this project? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, one is just a, a project way, and then I'll just like to maybe dovetail into the global context a bit, because that's driving uh, the timeline as well. But CPMA is indeed uh, a strong partner in this, along with well over 20 others. Uh, we're moving through a number of phases to scope out what a sustainability index could look like. Um, how can it be inclusive? How can we ensure that producers and the supply chain uh, players are part of this, as well as uh, as non-food leaders, such as in academia or government or the finance sector, technology sectors? So we're going through a process. We're coming out with a report, uh, probably as this podcast is published, uh, we'll be coming out with our first phase final report. And then we're now rolling up our sleeves to dig in deeper and make sure we get this right. But maybe I could, if you don't mind, Ian, I could just give you a quick snapshot on the global timing, because it actually is the essential backdrop to what we're doing. And that is, uh, we have a set of bold goals facing the planet. Uh, these are the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the Net Zero Carbon Goals, 
biodiversity is seen by many to be in crisis globally. And so this backdrop of tremendous change and transformation is seizing the food system. And Canada, being a leader that it is, uh, has an opportunity to provide a far more integrated picture of sustainability so it can be a leader in how it demonstrates how it's demonstrating, frankly, complying with those requirements and meeting expectations across the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it certainly sounds like really interesting and, and, and critical work because, like you said, there's all these targets, right, coming down the pipe, uh, whether it's from the federal government of Canada, uh, the UN. And, and it's really interesting because on this show and on our CPMA webinar series in the past, we've talked a lot about sustainability at a strategic or operational level. You know, how companies are reducing packaging, water usage, you know, selecting the right recyclable, compostable materials. But projects like this seem to put a wider lens on sustainability. Uh, Do you agree with that? Oh, I totally agree. And I think um, there's no question that CPMA, its membership, and the broader food system here in Canada has demonstrated quite a bit of progress against a host of objectives and goals. But what we're seeing uh, today and going forward is a transformation. There is a wholesale sense that uh, social uh, well-being, uh, environmental well-being, and economic viability are absolutely intertwined. Uh, we're seeing this play out in this uh, post-COVID, or I suppose in this COVID era, but this will be a feature going forward, if not a mainstay of how we operate. And what, what it's really telling us is that benchmarking matters. It matters to operate, it matters to compete, and it matters to comply uh, with all sorts of requirements, whether those are food company goals, producer-led goals, as you say, national or global goals. Uh, and again, how do we leverage this? Uh, what's interesting, and John will be speaking to this, is uh, there's a push to sustainable finance. Uh, this is rewarding companies with better credit terms because they're managing the risks and assessing these sorts of opportunities differently. So there's a transformation upon us And how we leverage that as a country is the challenge and the opportunity. And that's what we're trying to do through this sustainability index. There's certainly a lot of of components, right? So, I mean, you talked about the the economic drivers. I think the term is ESGs. Like you said, we'll have John uh, Erin talking a little bit more about that. And then from the environmental side, um, I'm just wondering if we can expand a little bit on biodiversity, the, you know, the decline of biodiversity certainly has been more in the spotlight in, in the space around climate change and, and environmental impact. Can you expand a little bit on how biodiversity and agri-food systems sort of intertwine? Well, let, let's, at the most basic level, how we eat, how we produce food, how we live is fundamentally connected to how we manage our landscapes and, and, and ocean and waterscapes. So that if, if we are abusing our land and our soil, uh, our water and air, degrading that to feed ourselves and live, we're taking away from a future generation to essentially feed ourselves today. We're not building resilience, if not. Now, the good news is despite some very challenging issues on the biodiversity front, The good news is Canada is a leader. 
our GHG, our greenhouse gas emissions intensity, is amongst the best in the world. Uh, we manage soil well. We have issues, uh, no question, on habitat, uh, biodiversity pressures, and water. Uh, but we have the governance, the capacity, and the innovation capacity to deal with this. And so while Canada is a leader, we're not perfect, and uh, nor is any other country. But we're part of a process, a system, where we have the ability to make even greater progress going forward. And, and then that goes back to this work, right? And essentially the, the importance of demonstrating that Canada is a leader. Well, and you know, we all see this today when we go into a grocery store. We see foods that are labeled uh, sustainably sourced. So this is in front of us today. Uh, it's in front of all of us when we eat from our plate. We're thinking about where did this food come from? Was it done responsibly? Was it produced responsibly? Am I have I degraded ecosystems, or has there been uh, have have labor been treated properly in how this has come together? These are the questions that more and more people are thinking about. But I want to take this in into one other spot: is that this benchmarking exercise, which may seem a little mundane to some, after all, it's about metrics and statistics and benchmarks. But actually, what it can become is an essential strategic tool, a policy tool, an innovation tool, a productivity tool, because what we're seeing is that if we are able to better benchmark performance, uh, we are able to then present choices from a policy standpoint of what may enable better performance. Are there barriers in policy, uh, government policy? Are we aligned as a food system? Are we working together on the right innovation track? So this is a catalyst for all sorts of other behavior. It's not a panacea, and I, we don't want to uh, make that appear that way. But if we leverage this, it could actually help us uh, determine how to add greater value, how to compete better, and how to deliver and demonstrate those positive societal outcomes that, that this was initially designed to address. Really interesting. With completion of the phase one work, are there any key outcomes that you can share uh, thus far? And, and, and what are the next steps? Yes. Well, our report uh, essentially made the compelling case, if not affirm the importance of needing to move forward with developing a sustainability index for the country's agri-food system. What it also did, and the next steps are embedded in this, is that we laid out a blueprint, a process to take this forward. Uh, it's not perfect. We want to get it refined. We need to reach out to other stakeholders. We want to be careful and cautious here that we don't unleash a, a process that is inefficient or ineffective or not credible. Uh, so there are some steps to go to get this right. This is complex, uh, but we are providing or would like to provide a high-level view of Canada's sustainability performance, and we want to avoid duplicating any efforts being undertaken across the sector right now. And so we're working through those details, and that's the focus of our next phase, as well as to get a little more credit for what Canada is doing through this exercise, perhaps on the global stage. Mm -hmm. Canada, if we get this right, why shouldn't this be a model for how other food systems might respond and manage these complex issues? Every country is different. There's no one size fits all, but how we collaborate and how we leverage this uh, I hope, will be a competitive opportunity for Canada at the very least. 
it's such a unique collaboration, right? And projects like this, I mean, it, it, you require all these different stakeholders to be involved and, and it's great that CPMA is involved, but it, it's, it's bringing together all of these different stakeholders. So it's a really, uh, really interesting uh, partnership, really interesting collaboration. Well, Ian, there are many public-private collaborations across the food system and elsewhere in Canada. Uh, but what's unique about it is that we actually are working at developing Canada's first agri-food sustainability index. This presents a wonderful opportunity to try to get it right, because uh, these diverse players from the private and public sector have all come together. Yes, they represent the interests of their organization, of course, but they are taking a sectoral, they're taking a national interest view. That creates common ground. Uh, yeah, there are going to be some tough discussions as we get into indicator development and how do we figure out how to measure properly biodiversity or other issues. Of course, that's going to be challenging. But if we don't do it, others will measure Canada for us. We need to step up and we need to get ourselves ready for this very fast changing food world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for joining this episode. I really look forward to future conversations as, as the project uh, moves forward. Thanks for your interest. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor, Nature Fresh Farms. And a special thank you to Nature Fresh for their continued support of the show. Hi there, it's Sarah from Nature Fresh Farms. Climate change poses serious social, economic, and environmental challenges for agriculture in Canada. While adapting to change is second nature to farmers, it is important we continue to support one another in finding more sustainable alternatives. That is why Nature Fresh Farms is always incorporating new eco-friendly initiatives to help lead our community to a greener future. For more information on our growing practices, visit www.naturefresh.ca slash sustainable growing. My next guest is John Uren, Head of Sustainable Finance, Products and Strategy at BMO Capital Markets. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about benchmarking and measuring sustainability. In my previous interview with David, we touched briefly on ESG criteria or environmental, social, and, and governance criteria um, for investing. I, I wonder if you could start off by expanding on what ESGs are um, and this whole concept of sustainable investing. Sure. Thanks, Ian. So ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And really, these are factors that historically, um, you know, were looked at as sort of risk factors that a company would face. So for instance, if a company performed per poorly related to some environmental factor, that could have a negative impact on its business and overall profitability. I think what's been interesting is, is the transition from ESG factors as risks to ESG as opportunities. And you now have some investors and, and certainly the general public that are looking at things like strong ESG performance as a way on the investor side to drive alpha or drive profitability. And on the customer side, you know, companies that perform well from an ES and G perspective oftentimes are ones that customers actually want to buy the products or buy the services from. So what we do know is that companies and governments, you know, they can't ignore ESG factors because investors, shareholders, and the public are so aware of ESG 
and more and more are factoring it into those investment and buying decisions. So maybe a couple of practical examples. You know, environmental factors are things like climate change mitigation and adaptation. How is a company preparing itself for climate change? How is it preparing its business or the services it provides from a climate change perspective? Energy efficiency. So is the company generating its electricity using you know, dirtier sources like coal or, or even natural gas? Are there alternatives like renewables, solar, wind, biofuels, um, geothermal, you know, other, other opportunities to produce their electricity or to generate their energy from cleaner sources? Of course, then pollution, waste and water, and, and even sustainable agriculture. And, and certainly we'll touch on that a little bit, I would say, throughout this interview. On the social side, you know, think about things like labor practices. So how does a company treat its employees, you know, from a human rights perspective, perhaps, you know, through COVID, I would say that things like human rights, things like employee mental health and vacation policies have really come into the limelight. You know, the public has been noticing companies that are treating their employees better through COVID. And I expect as we project forward, those are the types of companies that will be more profitable because customers have noticed, but also their employees will be more engaged and more willing and, and able and wanting to, to really devote their time to the company and its profitability. And then things like, you know, DE&I, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion, product quality and safety, and even supply chain management. Uh, that all falls under the example of, of social in the ES and G spectrum. And then finally, governance, you know, we're looking at things like board diversity and ex inclusion, executive pay policies, you know, are there independent directors that, you know, keep management in the C-suite position in line and, and give them some sort of different opinions and views on, uh, on the trajectory of the business and where it should go, even down to things like bribery and corruption and auditing. These are all examples of you know, things that can go very wrong from a governance perspective, if, if not handled correctly, but that can have material impacts on the way a business is run. And then of course, it's sort of long-term success. Is it set up well from a governance perspective? That will go a long way to determining whether or not it can be a profitable company. And then the second part you asked about, Ian, was around you know, what's this concept of sustainable investing? So it's fine to have these sort of ES and G factors that are out there. What is, you know, how, how is that actually incorporated into investing? And, and really, at its core, sustainable investing is it's about incorporating values into investment decisions. And it often includes aligning personal values with the investment decisions that are made. Now, there can be different approaches to sustainable investing and, and incorporating ESG factors. You know, historically, the easiest way to do it was through sort of exclusionary Okay, so negative screening. If I'm an investor and I know I don't want to hold companies that are in the tobacco industry or that are in gambling industry or, or even fossil fuels for some, then I'm intentionally going to leave out those companies. I'm going to exclude those companies so that they're not in my investment portfolio. Also, norms-based screening is another form of exclusionary. So are companies uh, aligned with the UN Global Compact or the UN Guiding Principles on Human Rights? You know, different international norms that have been adopted and accepted. And, and if they aren't aligned with those norms, then I don't want them in my portfolio. What we've seen is sort of a progress from simple exclusionary. And I, I, I say simple, it's not necessarily simple, but 
maybe a more involved way to look at it is through inclusionary. So ESG integration is one form of uh, sustainable investing where now you're incorporating those ES and G factors I mentioned at the beginning, you're incorporating those into your investment decision. So if I'm investing in a company, I'm not just looking at cash flows you know, and, and projected future profitability. I'm also factoring in, well, if they don't incorporate good governance or social or environmental practices, what could be the impact on their share price? Positive screening is another form of inclusionary um, as well, where you're kind of taking best in class. So who are the best environmental, the best social, the best governance performers? I only want the top quartile of, of the best of the best. And then thematic ESG investing, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's interested in clean tech. I want to only hold companies in clean tech. I think that's the future or companies that are generating water solutions or companies that have a focus on women in leadership position. You know, BMO has a mutual fund and an ETF that that sort of screens out companies that don't have at least certain percentages of, of women in leadership positions. But the idea being that the diversity of thought is one that will lead to, to you know, medium and long-term success and profitability for the company. And then finally, the, the sort of the last and sort of the furthest out there category of sustainable investing is around two, two themes, shareholder engagement, which is I'm going to, because I'm a shareholder, I'm going to actively engage with the company, with the board, with management, trying to improve their ESG performance. And then impact investing is kind of the final one where um, I'm, in addition to, you know, looking at the profitability of a company, I'm also an equally factoring in what is the positive social or economic or environmental impact that the company is making that goes sort of hand in hand and maybe even above the potential profitability of the company. I need to see a social or environmental return as well. I, I get the sense that this space has really evolved over recent years. You know, I, I think, you know, the term used to be ethics, right? But I certainly get the sense that this certainly has evolved and, 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 and grown as a uh, as an important space for for investors for private sector, it has it really has. And like we, you know, I, I mentioned sort of the spectrum of everything from exclusionary, maybe historically or ethical investing. Yeah, that you're right. That that was sort of how it was termed in the 70s and 80s when it first kind of came to be. All the way through to you know incorporating directly an, an impact return alongside a financial return. I mean, what's been most remarkable and the biggest change we've seen uh, is a byproduct of that, which is the growth. Right. And like I was just reading a report yesterday in Canada in 2020, there's $3.2 trillion in responsible investing AUM. $3.2 trillion, which was hmm. a, a nearly 50%, a 48% growth over wow. a two year period. Yeah. Hmm. So since 2018 to 2020, there was a 48% growth in responsible investing AUM. And this is only in Canada. In the US, it grew 42% over those two years, up to $17 trillion. That's remarkable growth. And yeah. now the, you know, the category of responsible investing is how I explained it a moment ago around sustainable investing. So it can be anything from sort of negative all the way through to impact. But nevertheless, that's a huge market share, right? Mm -hmm. And what that signals to me is that, you know, from an equities perspective, you know, as I mentioned, investors, shareholders, they're really, you know, have a keen eye to ESG and, and see it not only as risk, but also as opportunity. But from a fixed income perspective, um, you know, we had 700 billion in sustainable debt issued uh, globally last year as well. You, you have corporates and you have sovereigns or countries that are desperate to, to raise proceeds to finance 
green or social outcomes. So green bonds, social bonds, you might have heard some of those terms. Like those are examples of companies that are saying, look, we have projects we want to finance. We want to come to market with a labeled sustainable debt product. Maybe it'll even price a little bit better, i.e. more profitably for the company because investors, you know, sometimes these bonds are four or five times oversubscribed. And what it does do then is then transitions them and sets them up for a lower, you know, a lower, lower carbon future or greener future because they have the proceeds in hand to make the necessary investments to improve energy efficiency or to look at their, you know, transportation if they're a shipping company or to look at the, the buildings in which they operate and see if they can get them to be LEED certified or something. So it kind of is win-win both on the issuer side, but also on the investor and shareholder side. For sure. And, and it really places the importance and, and the impact of projects like this national index for agri-food performance from this investment side. It's, it's one really important component. It is. Yeah. Ian, it is a really important component. So, the, the, you know, the, the agri-food performance index that's being developed is going to be really relevant to identifying what the most important environmental and social factors are for producers in Canada. It's one thing for us to know our story here in Canada to say we have companies that are focused and farmers that are focused on, you know, cleaner production uh, and cleaner food, you know, food services. But it's a whole other thing to actually set a benchmark that is sort of global best practices to then point to and say, not only are we saying that we're the best, now we can take that out to the market and say, we've actually, you know, had an independent group. Uh, this working group that's putting this this index together that has identified, you know, from a variety of expertise, has identified the most relevant factors from the environmental or social or health and safety perspective. And now we're saying, you know, we're actually above and beyond what those thresholds are. I think it'll be important to sort of open up markets globally to really showcase the Canadian egg space, um, to get our story out there, the things we already know that we're doing really well here in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a way to sort of get a platform to, to bring that to other markets and, and potentially open up new markets. So looking at the agri-food sector specifically, do you have any examples that you can share in terms of, you know, utilizing that ESG criteria within agri-food? I do. Yeah. So at BMO, we've, we've committed to mobilizing $400 billion towards sustainable finance by 2025. Um, so it's a huge commitment, but with that comes... You know, a major portion of it is is around how do we get capital to companies that are pursuing sustainable outcomes. Mm-hmm. So an example of that, I mean, in December of 2019, we approached Maple Leaf Foods, who is a you know preeminent, um, you know, they, they're actually their goal is to be the most sustainable protein company in the world, and they announced this really you know ambitious targets for 2025 um, science based targets from a. Uh, emissions efficiency perspective. They want to reduce their greenhouse gases emitted. They want to improve their electrical um, usage, their water consumption, uh, their waste uh, diversions or recycling programs. Really, you know, really substantial goals that they set for themselves. But in doing so in 2019, announced that they're the first carbon carbon neutral uh, protein company in the world. We saw that at BMO and said, this is an opportunity to continue to support this client along their sustainability journey. So we actually worked out a what's called a sustainability linked loan with Maple Leaf Foods, which was a $2 billion facility where the interest rate margin that Maple Leaf pays on the loan can decrease if they achieve their very ambitious targets, you know, related to carbon neutrality, 
uh, related to electricity, water, and waste that I mentioned, if they can achieve those over the over the five-year term of the loan, those kind of yearly step-ups where if they hit certain targets on the way, we'll act, they'll actually pay less interest on the loan. Now, this was the first in Canada, the first of its kind in Canada, and certainly aligned with BMO's strategy to get capital to companies that are pursuing sustainable outcomes, but supported Maple Leafs in a Maple Leaf in a meaningful way because it really, you know, suddenly you're aligning their sustainability ambitions with the treasury function as well. So if we can actually tie cost to capital to achieving certain environmental outcomes, to us at BMO, that's win-win and it supports a client that's really committed to this. So that same Billy Link loan is one example where, um, you know, that, that, that could be available as well for other borrowers as we look out to the market, especially those with meaningful commitments. I want to flag one other example as well. So, so Lakeside Produce and Nature Fresh are, are two greenhouses here in Ontario. And, you know, we issued a sustainability bond, BMO did, back in 2019. And one of the categories for our bond was uh, sustainable land use. Now, financings that we had provided to Lakeside and Nature Fresh under that bond actually allowed, in the Lakeside example, allowed them to finance a, a two megawatt cogen unit to, to reduce their carbon footprint. They have a fully closed water uh, circulation system. They monitor the use of single use plastics, things like that. And Nature Fresh actually put in a closed loop irrigation system where it recycles, I think up to like 300 million liters of water. They minimize their pesticide use. They use LED lighting, et cetera. The point being that these are greenhouses that are committed to sustainable food production and creation. And for us to be able to support them in a meaningful way, and, and we actually just profiled these two companies in our sustainability uh, report that came out in December, we wanted to profile them and highlight these companies as great examples of ones that we're so proud and happy and honored to be financing because they're using proceeds in a really progressive and, and sort of forward thinking way. That's amazing to hear. I mean, both are great members of ours. I mean, you, you kind of covered my my last question here, which is, you know, what does this all mean for for the growers, the distributors, the suppliers, and and the retailers as well in 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 the fresh fruit and vegetable sector? Obviously, you know, there's certainly products um, uh, available for those that, that are pursuing these these sustainable solutions. Yeah, well, like, you know, as we were kind of talking about with with the index earlier, like I I think what it means for growers, distributors, suppliers. Uh, in the Canadian ag sector is, is it's just such an opportunity to, to shine a light again on, on the great ESG practices that they're probably already undertaking, you know, and what I would highlight is, you know, I've, I've mentioned some of Nature Fresh and, and Lakeside's, you know, environmental um, uh, goals that they were able to achieve from financing. But what's really important is this concept of a, of a triple bottom line, right? So we're not asking our clients to just do something for an environmental reason because it'll make us feel good um, and Greenpeace will be happy. We're doing it for the triple bottom line, which is environmental and social. Those are two of the three. But the third is around economic performance as well, right? So that's the, the third and the triple because we think it's our thesis and it's proven out by a lot of academic research that you know, if you start to incorporate environmental best practices or social best practices, it actually can be more profitable. So examples are like, you know, if you optimize water efficiency, that will save you money. If you can generate electricity from biofuels or other renewable sources like wind or solar, I mean, solar is now the cheapest form of electricity in history, cheaper than coal, cheaper than natural gas. If you can do that, that'll enhance 
especially over the medium to long-term, enhance your profitability, minimizing pesticides, things like that. I was recently talking to a Canadian company called Yuko Agro, who uses a platform to analyze weather, soil, and crop data from fields, and then advises the farmer on, on crop input applications up to a week in advance. So what they do on the platform is basically optimize crop yields, maximize efficiencies, reduce diseases, because they can use science to determine what's best for the crop, given the weather patterns that are coming, given you know, different other considerations within, within the crop itself. So you see technologies like this and you get really encouraged because you know that the really smart people out there are creating these clean tech platforms that will only serve to help the growers and distributors and suppliers in the fresh food, uh, fresh food sector. And what I would say is, is BMO, you know, we're always talking to uh, companies in the clean tech space. We actually set up an impact fund and seeded it with $250 million to direct, directly invest in early stage clean tech companies so that we could bring the solutions to our clients to solve their sustainability challenges. So I, I think, you know, just staying in touch um, with us and then also what's going on just generally in, in the clean tech sectors will go a long way to enhancing that, that triple bottom line, which of course creates great outcomes for, you know, farmers, but all the way through to society at large. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much, John. It was great to, uh, great to have you on the show. And we look forward to continuing to uh, work with you on the National Index on Agri-Food uh, Performance. Great. Thanks very much, Ian. And my final guest is Bridget Schrempf. She is the Senior Manager of Sustainable Food Systems Initiatives with CDP Worldwide. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe you can start off uh, by letting our listeners know about uh, CDP. Sure, absolutely. So CDP was launched just over 20 years ago now in 2000 um, with the ambition to try to transform capital markets by making climate change reporting and risk management a business norm. So the theory being what gets measured gets managed. So we did this by launching the first systemic link between environmental and financial information. So at the time that was connecting what was 35 investors who signed on to our very first climate change questionnaires to 500 of the world's largest companies. And at that time we had 245 of them respond to that request. Um, since then that number has grown to be over 515 investors um, that account for 106 trillion US in assets. Um, as well as large purchasing authorities who are now requesting information on climate change, but also now on water security and forests through CDP from companies. So now we have over 9,600 companies around the world responding to this request uh, last year in 2020. And this now represents over 50% of global market value. So during this time, kind of the focus of CDP expanded from climate change to the interlinked environmental issues of water security and deforestation. But our target audience um, also expanded to incorporate cities, states, and regions now with hundreds um, disclosing through their own platform through, through CDP. Um, so with the world's largest now most comprehensive data set on environmental action, the insights that CDP holds um, are vital for fueling and tracking the global economy's progress towards a low carbon, water secure, deforestation free world. So not only, though, is it a source of disclosed data, but CD, the CDP questionnaire itself kind of provides a framework for action, um, which companies can use as a pathway through disclosure to kind of management of impacts to environmental leadership. 
So the program that I specifically lead at CDP, which is called the Sustainable Food Systems Initiative, um, recognizes food as one of these key interdisciplinary issues that sits really at the intersection of these important environmental issues and also touches um, almost all aspects of human and planetary well-being. That's a critical element of the solution to achieving this broader goal of you know, this low carbon economy, as well as meeting the global goals outlined in the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. So with this program, we aim to utilize our framework and the programs that we have to analyze and track progress uh, specifically in the corporate food value chain towards sustainable food system transformation and then support those companies in their transition through the information that's disclosed to CDP and raise awareness of the impacts and risk to business to make that economic benefits to transition clear and recognized. Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like it's another uh, representation of, of of the growth of uh, of sustainability and companies in the corporate sector's focus on on sustainability. Just you know, the growth of services such as such as this, you know, it's just one more representation of how companies are focusing more and more on this space. And it really fits into, you know, this conversation in this episode about the National Index on on agri food uh, performance and. You know, I, I really we've been talking about the project, but I really want to emphasize, you know, sort of the why and also the how, you know, behind measuring and demonstrating sustainable leadership. We talked a little bit already about the why from, you know, the ESG investment and corporate side, um, but it would be really great to dig into more of the how. Um, so what are some of the fundamental components to measuring environmental impact and sustainability specifically for food systems? You know, what I've found first, the most important thing is to be able to reach a shared understanding of what sustainable food systems are. So we very much look to a lot of the global work that's being undertaken by thought leaders, both within our organizations, as well as other NGOs, but primarily really the research community that's done a lot of work to define this. So then when we kind of look at what that sustainable food system transformation agenda looks like. We want to ensure that the reporting mechanisms like CDP disclosures, CDP's disclosure framework is asking the right questions to be able to then track the transitions. Um, in my particular project is looking at the corporate food value chain as a start. Look at what those what the key transitions entail to support for, for the private sector's role to support a sustainable food system um, and make sure that we're able to track and drive that progress. Um, and CDP, you know, we our tagline is disclosure, insight, action. It's a it's a journey, it's a pathway. So we say that, you know, the first step in order to know what those fundamental components are to even be able to measure this. Um, the first step is understanding where change is needed. So that starts with transparency. So disclosure to CDP is a um, avenue to increase transparency, um, as well as disclosure to particularly the relevant forest risk commodities, which is an area that's currently lacking globally, as well as measurement of appropriate metrics such as water withdrawals and discharge quality. Um, we know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know that the global food system contributes almost a quarter or more of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it uses half of global habitable land and 70% of global freshwater withdrawals. So that gives us some guidance in terms of essential components that 
first have to be assessed and measured by all companies, kind of no matter where they sit in the food value chain. Um, and those include things like calculating and reporting on emissions in um, an effort to emit fewer greenhouse gas emissions, measuring and monitoring water withdrawals, especially from areas with water, with water stress, um, as well as pollution discharge is very important. So ensuring that the water quality and quantity are, are not impacted. Um, tracing commodities to the point of origin to ensure that they're not directly or indirectly contributing to land degradation and conversion, including deforestation, which is a large driver of greenhouse gas emissions from the food system is also incredibly important. Um, from there, companies then have to take what they are measuring in terms of you know, th their own impact, what they're using um, and what they're putting out, and they have to Act. So specifically, companies have to kind of seek to understand what their risks are by conducting risk assessment and undertaking scenario analysis. Um, this is a key recommendation of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, and it's very vital to help companies understand their vulnerabilities and drive appropriate action where it's needed the most. Um, and then they also must be setting science-based emissions reduction targets that pay particular attention to scope three emissions, where we've found most um, of the emissions in the food value chain come from. And then lastly, be because of that fact, uh, companies must fully understand their value chains through engagement with their suppliers and smallholder farmers. Um, and we currently do find that this engagement is lacking. However, as more companies, particularly farther along the value chain, um, set science-based targets, which is very much moving to becoming the, the business more norm, they identify that they must be addressing those scope three emissions. And we see leaders in this space kind of deploying innovative mechanisms to support and increase adoption of agricultural practices that are gonna have climate mitigation or adaptation benefits, but also simultaneously be able to help drive benefits to biodiversity, soil, water, and their annual yield. So I would say kind of once you get those um, basic fundamentals of measure in terms of where you then need to move to act, where you sit in the value chain becomes incredibly important in terms of what areas of measurement and action are kind of the, the highest priority for you to undertake. And we'll, we'll talk about the value chain in a little bit, but I'm just wondering if maybe you can expand on uh, scope three for our listeners. That one's a new term for me. So uh, absolutely. And I, <laughs> I'm so sorry to everyone. I always forget we get so stuck in our, our terms. Um, scope three, there, there's, there's three key kind of scopes of emissions that an organization uh, can can emit into the atmosphere or is responsible for um, through their through their operations. So scope one and two is what we would call operational emissions. So it's the emissions that come from kind of your own operations your, that you have direct control over. And then scope three is what is more appropriately called value chain emissions and how I should have you know, referred to it. And that is the emissions that are happening both upstream and downstream of your operation that you also do have responsibility for from an emissions accounting perspective. So when companies disclose to us their environmental information, um, best practice is that they are able to provide a what we call a full greenhouse gas emission inventory. And that should include your scope one and two emissions. So your, your operational emissions, and it should also include your value chain emissions for the categories of scope three emissions that you, that are relevant to your, to your particular business operations. Mm -hmm. In in the produce world, uh, one of those 
components is plastics right now. And that's certainly been a big topic for us, but that's certainly a big topic of uh, debate around policy too, is, you know, who's responsible for that plastic along the value chain, you know, is it, is it the manufacturers of the plastic or, or so on? So it's, it's interesting how it all, you know, weaves together. I think that's why, you know, accountability becomes so, or these account, accountability, um, accounting, sorry, not accountability is very important too, but accounting <laughs> frameworks are are essential because they actually give companies kind of this methodology in which they can calculate what they're responsible for and what they're not. And there, there is, you know, currently a gap, particularly in food systems. I know we were talking about plastics there, and that's a big area of discussion, but another big area kind of a struggle right now from an emissions accounting perspective is that we don't necessarily have the methodologies to account for the emissions from land use change. Um, so sequestration, biogenic emissions. Now um, organizations are working on that. Um, some of our partners, CDP is part of what's called the Science-Based Targets Initiative with WWF and WRI, the World Resources Institute. And they are currently working on kind of developing a new, uh, a new methodology for the greenhouse gas reporting standard that will start to close this gap and be able to better account for emissions from land use change, which are critical for the food system. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just talking a little bit more about the value chain, um, you know, I read CDP's Hungry for Change report where it was advocated, you know, a, a value chain approach, you know, looking across that whole value chain. And again, like you said, with th- those extended impacts, when analyzing the corporate sector's participation in, in, in food systems and, you know, to effectively drive positive change. Um, why is this, you know, sort of sectoral approach or value chain approach the best? And do you have any examples from, you know, your analysis uh, that, that you can share? Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I think this, this kind of derives really well from some of the points you were making even about uh, packaging and, you know, who's responsible for, for what the value, the food value chain is, you know, incredibly complex. Um, and it's not necessarily always so easy to place responsibility, you know, squarely in one place. Um, it's been made very clear by leaders in the research community that food systems transformation has to encompass all actors behind the process of adding value to what people consume. So that's upstream, midstream, downstream, and actions from all levels of the value chain are necessary. And companies throughout this chain have a role to play both on their own, but also collaboratively with the rest of the value chain. So why a value chain approach is so important is that it acknowledges this interconnectedness and complexity of the food system and value chain. So impacts at the farm level, for instance, where we know, you know, a significant amount of the impacts when it comes to emissions or resource use occur, those often reverberate through the supply chain with costs that are borne further down by processors and wholesalers, retailers, and consumers. Um, Conversely, large companies and consumers exert extreme influence on the value chain through their buying power. Um, So when we take this more granular approach, it enables CDP to try to focus efforts on identifying specific interventions or points of strength or weaknesses at relevant points or subsectors across the food value chain, where a critical intervention is more likely to trigger change across the chain and enable innovation. 
Um, now, we're not quite there yet. We are trying very hard to identify some of those specific interventions that we want to utilize our platform and support our, our stakeholders, companies in this place, in this case, uh, moving towards. But in terms of our analysis, we wanted to kind of get a, a baseline of what is occurring in the food value chain from these important measurement um, measurement areas. So we analyze a lot of disclosure data across our core CDP's core themes. So we have three questionnaires on climate change, water security, and deforestation. And one particular issue that we do ask about that really kind of gets the heart of the value chain approach is understanding at the base level how companies are or are not engaging with their value chains. Um, we see value chain engagement is not only important to address those environmental issues, but there's also, you know, innovative financial incentive mechanisms that companies can that can use to employ kind of innovative approaches to their operations and encourage investment or or um, increase the ability for smallholder farmers or growers to adopt new innovations. Um, we do see that, you know, while because we all, we also looked at kind of what are the what are the risks that are being disclosed in the value chain, and we see that for the food system, or sorry, the food value chain specifically as compared to what we call kind of the rest of the global companies when we compared these samples, all other companies disclosing to CDP, we see that for instance, changing precipitation patterns in as a risk in the value chain was disclosed at four times the rate of non-food companies. But we found that a much kind of smaller portion of companies are engaging with their, with their, with their full value chain. So, you know, it's not quite matching up. And we are seeing that those that I think I said earlier that are recognizing that that's where they really need to implement change or that's kind of moving up the rung of their priority areas of where they want to be able to be most successful as they're finding they see they can implement a practice that has so many benefits all at once. So it's kind of a win-win-win for all of their goals. And But they realize they need to be really engaging the value chain proactively to be able to do this because it can't just be top down. It has to engage growers kind of from the bottom up. So when when looking to evaluate how, you know, the Canadian agri-food system performs, what should Canadian businesses, you know, particularly food producers, including, of course, produce growers, um, be focused on right now with respect to measuring their environmental impacts? So, I mean, I think this is the question of how do we take these global, how do we take this global picture, these measurements and try to apply it more regionally. So when we think about, when we think about how to evaluate, it's important to understand that the impacts and risks that companies face now and will face in the future, um, we have to first understand what those are. And we can get a sense of this by both using the, what the companies are telling us in their own words in the disclosure, but it's important to kind of also complement that by external research specific to the geography and sector when looking at you know, what might be the best areas of focus or interventions. This work as a whole is in addition to other important work done by CDP to understand what the food system needs to look like in the future to meet the pressing demands in a sustainable way um, and the actions companies can take us to get there. So if we were, for instance, to look at Canada and look at work via the Climate Atlas and others, we see that, you know, Canada's, they say Canada's agricultural regions are likely to, likely to see drier summers from coast to coast, but then increase winter and spring precipitation. So this means that farmers may have to deal with both too much water during the seeding season and too little water during the growing season, all in the same year. 
Um, many countries are going to face similar issues, sometimes too much water, not enough water, and it's specifically problematic for food growers. So in, and in corporate disclosure from Canada, we do clearly see companies identifying the same risks um, related to climate change. Companies mostly foresee risk from extreme weather events and changes in weather patterns, both of which kind of directly relate to the disclosed water risks of severe weather events and increased water scarcity. So kind of an example in bringing all this together, the external research as well as kind of the company's own words show us that these changing weather patterns, extreme weather events and water shortages must be addressed. Um, so it's critical for companies to be measuring their impact and monitoring this their, their withdrawals, looking at setting targets, especially in water stressed areas regarding their withdrawals, implementing practices that are going to, you know, increase the ability of the soil to withhold water. But more broadly, it means that there needs to be risk assessment, particularly scenario analysis that looks at multiple plausible future scenarios. Um, which is critical to being prepared for and responding to what's on the horizon so that then they can start thinking critically about their operation of what changes could be or might be able to be made in order to increase the resiliency of their operation and the supply chain as a whole. So kind of overall, first measure, manage and report climate and environmental risks, as well as the impacts you're responsible for in your own operations or value chains. Second, uh, for companies particularly procuring large amounts of commodity products to incentivize and support value chain partners, particularly smallholder farmers, to be able to adopt more productive, resilient and, agri and regenerative agriculture practices that are going to be more resilient to possible extreme weather events. Um, third, implementing those forward-looking mechanisms to plan for low carbon transitions. So that could be in setting science-based targets, forest water-related targets. And then lastly, Companies setting those targets to reduce emissions, conserving critical resources like land and water, work to align their product portfolios, manage, management incentives, and R&D in a way that aligns with regional variations of the Eat Lancet planetary health diet alongside those efforts to build resiliency. So if you kind of look into the future of what a sustainable food system needs to look like, making sure that you're assessing your own operations against various climate futures, get ahead of thinking proactively how you might be able to innovate or how your product currently aligns with feeding a global, a growing global population within those planetary boundaries and look at what your major purchasing organizations are starting to look at within their own scope three. So in their value chain emissions and how you can work proactively with them to ensure that, you know, you are ready for those changes or you are proactively ensuring the resiliency of your operations. Mm -hmm. That's quite the to-do list. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> There's a lot of data points. No, <laughs> but I think that that's, uh, I, I think it's good that we're kind of emphasizing this because it brings out the importance and I think the role of projects like the National Index on, on agri-food where, you know, there's a lot of players involved. There's a lot of analysis and, and metrics to be measured. My read of it in terms of where the, the national index fits is, you know, it, it comes right from, wow, that's a big to-do list. Those, those are a lot of metrics. How there are, it's it, looking at a sustainable food system. We know it's a, it's a significant transformation that has to, has to take place. And it involves every actor across the value chain, really strategically assessing their position and moving away from business as usual. And I think what the, with this project kind of, helps with that is it helps to identify 
priorities for a specific region? So how do you kind of wade through and identify those? You know, we were talking about hotspot areas just in, you know, one food value chain or for a company. Oh, that's where my greatest impact is. Potentially it's in my value chain emissions. Um, there's a, you know, extreme risk from drought. We need to do something about that. It gives these global, it, it gives a way to maybe distill down these global metrics to the things that are materially important for the Canadian food system specifically um, to be able to be successful mm-hmm. in the next decade and following mm-hmm. that. And uh, so successful economically and environmentally. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, my, in my previous role, I, I worked directly with companies, some of which in Canada setting, setting science-based targets and kind of the tagline there was, you know, what's good for climate is what's good for business. And that is kind of what CDP is very much trying to demonstrate, connecting these, the environment and the financial system to show that, you know, a, a low carbon economy is good for the bottom line uh, in the long term. For sure. And I think, and I think that's well understood, you know, across corporate sec across the corporate sector, across consumers, uh, across policymakers. I think that's well understood. I guess we're at this sort of analysis and implementation phase. Yeah. Which is very exciting. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's the hard part, but (laughs) it's the part that is the most important. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really excited that we're at this stage with this work and I'm excited to see what comes out of the project. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for uh, for joining the episode and uh, telling us a little bit more about CDP and uh, sort of the ins and outs of uh, analysis and measurement. There's lots there. And uh, <laughs> thanks so much for joining. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks again to David, John, and Bridget for joining me on this episode. To learn more about the National Index on Agri-Food Performance, you can head to cpma.ca forward slash industry to learn more. Until next time, fill half your plate with fruits and veggies, continue to seek out new knowledge, and basically never stop growing.